Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Oh, say, see. If you're an American and you're professing to be a Christian, Edgy. well, of course, as American citizens, what we want is accountable leadership. Get engaged in the political process. Honest. You, my friend, are part of the problem and not the solution. The church needs to rise. Rise. The Monica Matthews, Monica Matthews Show. Welcome back to the Monica Matthews Show. Happy January 18th, 2023. Today is Wednesday. Do hope that you are preparing for a wonderful weekend filled with experiences with your family, loved ones, friends, even people you don't like. That's also very good for us sometimes. Speaking of a topic that, you know, some people are just tired of discussing, but it has completely overtaken our entire lives across the globe. Today, we uh, we're joined again by Dr. Andrew Huff prolific author, as well as former VP of Eco Health Alliance, uh, VP as well as senior scientist there. Uh, Dr. Andrew Huff is the author of what is sure to be a bestseller, The Truth About Wuhan, How I Uncovered the Biggest Lie in History. He was my co-host today in my second episode of a six-part series on Twitter Spaces. You can catch that at Monica on Air Talk on Twitter. Uh, our first episode was the intro to bio warfare and pandemics. If you uh, missed that, uh, that was with Mr. Charles Rixey, as well as uh, Colonel uh, Hoffman was with us, uh, John Hoffman. Uh, I do encourage you to go back and take a listen to that episode. You can find it in my queue, my cash for podcasts. It's also on my Twitter feed. Um, again, that was the intro to bio warfare and pandemics. Going back to the beginning, going back to the genesis of covid Again, the title of of this series is Risk Factor, Why COVID Was Made, right? Some people will say, yeah, there's no evidence to that. But these folks are building a very um, conclusive case, I think, is what's happening over the next uh, five episodes left. Um, and I think you'll begin to see that in the first episode. And I do want to say that as uh, as disclaimers go, I do want to start by saying that the views, data, and opinions expressed here today do not necessarily reflect those of Clear Talk Media or me, your host, Monica Matthews. I'm going to ask you to please put on your discernment caps, put on your discernment ears, and use that beautiful filter called discernment uh, through which to listen and to learn and to disseminate information. Twitter, for sure, has taken us back to the time when we can start to decide and discern for ourselves what is fact, what is fiction, and how to apply uh, new information to our lives and our ability to uh, choose correctly for for our lives, right? For our health and for our freedom. So without further ado, today we are talking about biosurveillance. What is that? A little creepy, right? It makes me think of your watches that you all wear to count like every sneeze and, and 
hiccup and walk and skip and jump and hop and every time you get in the bed and out of the bed and who you're with and who you shouldn't be with and restroom breaks and what you're drinking, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, how you're breathing, all of that is surveilled. Speaking of surveil, I hope all of you are surveilling your 401k portfolios right now because another nation is on the verge, on the verge as of yesterday, of removing our currency from their reserve currency. Now, what does that mean for the economy and for your U.S. dollars? Well, let me tell you, I'm no financial expert by any stroke of the imagination, but here's what it, here's what it means. It's not good for the value of our dollar for us to no longer be the reserve currency around the globe. So what does that also mean? It means that you should go to monicaprotectswithgold.com right now and inquire about how you can preserve what's left of your retirement portfolio savings and or Roth IRAs. If you have $50,000 or more in your retirement portfolio, you owe it to yourself to inquire today at monicaprotectswithgold.com as to how you can protect what's left of it, right? Over 30%, people are seeing losses of over 30% in their retirement portfolios. Some of you can't even get your portfolio managers to return your calls. So again, monicaprotectswithgold.com and surveil your own finances. Amen. So without further ado, we're talking about biosurveillance. What is it? What isn't it? Why do we even have it? That's my biggest question. Why do you need to know? And don't tell me it's a matter of national security, even though in some instances I realize that it is. But really, I think you're going to be kind of surprised to hear what Dr. Huff, um, what he assigns a a particular value to with regard to um, the demand and, and the efficacy the the motives behind bio surveilling. All right. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. So, Tin, I know you have some questions for Dr. Huff regarding you know, some things you've been reading through the book. Uh, you're starting to connect some dots. Some things are more intriguing than others for you, scientifically speaking. So do you want to kick us off with some of your questions? Sure, with pleasure. I start out with uh, this section on uh, Chapter 1. And uh, it was it was kind of really one of the it's kind of germane to today in specific. He's speaking to the SIGID and comment and uh, how intelligence tools are used to gather information. And, uh, you know, could you kind of give us like a little bit of an understanding, Dr. Huff, of like how, you know, or what you can discuss about developing technologies and platforms um, you know, for various organizations. Sure, absolutely. And I think it'd be most helpful to start with a little background information on sort of the, the, the what and the why. So the problem that public health officials deal with at the local level, that could be like a city like New York City or in some more Western states, sometimes it's the county. In other places, the state government is has the firm control over public health policy and response. And then at the federal government, there's a number of different agencies uh, domestically, and, and that's uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the Office of Health Affairs specifically. Uh, there's another sub-agency there called uh, NBIC, which stands for the National Biological uh, Integration Center of Collect Information from all these different organizations. The Department of Defense has a hand in it. Uh, definitely the CDC. Uh, and traditionally, the, the funny thing, we can come back to this too, is that the, the Centers for Disease Control actually used to be sort of the, the hub for where all this 
information around diseases went to. And we deviated that for, for some strange reason in, in COVID, it seems. Um, the FDA has a hand in it uh, through a number of different testing. And the federal government actually funds a number of different laboratories uh, all across the world. And this is sort of what the Ukrainian labs is tied tied into, some of the work that was being done at those laboratories. Uh, but they fund laboratories all over the world to conduct surveillance uh, for different infectious disease agents and actually chemical events and other things, which we can talk about uh, here, here in a second, too. Um, in the United States, they actually funded a number of uh, laboratories, both for animal health, because some of these diseases are zoonotic, meaning they transmit easily between animals and humans and sometimes vice versa. And then also a number of human health diseases. The other types of contracts or relationships that the federal government have with laboratories are also uh, related to bioterrorism and biowarfare. There, there's an old program called BioWatch, which was created after 9-11 to specifically look for uh, these type of pathogens, which are uh, of bioterror or biowarfare concern. And Colonel Hoffman was, was discussing that when we wrapped up our our uh, last conversation. So simply biosurveillance is the systematic collection of health or infectious disease information to inform policymaking. So when do, you know, how, how does the health to public health department declare an outbreak? How do they respond to that? How do they, and they, they actually have a number of different policy options available to them to respond to emerging infectious disease threats. And, it's because of all these these different information streams and the inherent gaps and problems with these information streams that really leads to this gain of function debate and the dual use of uh, dual use research of concern because the the problem with all biosurveillance is that we're only capturing cases or infectious disease information as it comes into the laboratory after the event. So there's something in infectious disease epidemiology called the, the bio-event timeline. And it's, it's very simple. So you have infectious disease agents out in the world, okay? You could talk about the common cold. We could talk about the flu. It doesn't really matter which one you pick. But each one of those diseases has an average onset period of time. And what I mean by that is how long is it from the period where the person or animal is exposed to a disease until the point where they become symptomatic. And when they become symptomatic, they typically also become infectious. There, there's, there's different diseases which sort of violate these, these basic rules, but for all arguments, uh, arguments sake, they, they all sort of fit this pattern. So the other thing is not every person that gets exposed to an infectious disease agent or um, becomes sick will end up in the system, so to speak, of the information that they're trying to collect. So uh, everyone on this on the space can probably, you know, relate to this, is how often do you go to the doctor or go get a, a, a blood sample taken or a swab every time you get, get, get the sniffles or, or get sick? And the vast majority of people never go to the doctor when they become sick. The only cases that typically start to end up in the system are the most severe cases where you have to go show up to the doctor, you have to go to the emergency room because you have you know, some pretty nasty infection. So these biosurveillance systems only capture, capture a small fraction of the total existing caseload that exists out in the world at, at any, any moment. So the infectious disease community, the public health community, the government has gotten creative and trying to figure out how we can get correlations or, or other corollary signals 
to identify these infectious disease outbreaks. One, one really neat one that's been around for a long period of time is uh, over-the-counter medicine sales. And New York City does this really well. So they actually have partnered with the companies that sell over-the-counter drugs. So Walgreens, CVS, Dwayne, Dwayne Reed, I think, is in, in New York City too. And they, they're able to see when cold and flu medicines uh, spike. So they, they see the, the, the purchases, the transactions, and they monitor them. They look for a signal. So uh, back to, to tinfoil, uh, tinfoil hats uh, question. So there's a, some jargon in the government called SIGIN, and that's called signals intelligence. So this over-the-counter medication purchase is a, a type of, of signal that you can look at. You can also look at the signals of sample collection. So another example of that would be is if you had all the information from all these laboratories being digitized and then being sent over the internet. And because you're the government and you have broad surveillance capabilities and authority, you can start to analyze all the digital information in the pipeline to look for these disease signals. There's other types of intelligence. Uh, one, one is human intelligence. That would be um, human sources. So agents would go out and interact with other people to, to, to collect information to see what's really going on. Back to, to biosurveillance. So all this and signals. So the, the, the government has different jargon or, or acronyms that they use to describe this type of information that they're, they're trying to analyze. But, but all of that is just another form of uh, intelligence, basically, or health intelligence. And, and the military, actually, or the Department of Defense has a whole division um, of the military dedicated to collecting and analyzing this information. So with this bio event timeline, going back to this, this problem is that if you don't have enough cases reporting to, to, to generate a signal, no matter what the source of the data is, whether it's through laboratory, uh, traditional laboratory-based infectious disease surveillance or with um, one of these more advanced methods like I used to build uh, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, you're, there's just not going to be a signal. And the, the worst part is because of this bio-event timeline. So think about this in terms of bioterror uh, or a pandemic uh, threat. So if it takes seven days on average for there to be symptoms after exposure from an infectious disease to the point where people start presenting at the hospital, the attack event was seven days ago. And now you're the government and uh, whether that's the state, federal or local authorities are sort of in a terrible spot in trying to respond to this because it's much easier to respond to these types of threats when you, you, you have either you're as close as possible in the bio event timeline to the when it was released, if it was intentional. And the same thing, actually, the same logic applies to whether uh, naturally emerging events as well. If it's uh, something that's highly pathogenic and we see this more commonly in animal production uh, with farming. The sooner you can respond to it, the more you can minimize further loss of life or casualties or morbidity or mortality. Well, thank you, Dr. Huff. I really appreciate that. Yeah, so so today, you guys, obviously, we're talking about um, surveillance, right, biosurveillance. And so... I don't want to, I don't want to turn this into a, a, a theory hour for sure. Uh, but I'm curious because, because the, the average listener, right? And the, and the average person who's been grossly affected by all of this, if we go back to last week, I keep going back to last week to the other day, many people were left with, was this after that conversation? We were left with a sense of, okay, we, we created offensively. This bio agent, if you will, or or the, this this virus, okay, in 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 an effort to offensively um, 
uh, deal with the potential of a release, right, uh, on on our people. And and I think the Russians were brought into the conversation uh, for the sake of, you know, for Monday's conversation. And so, but then, but then part of the conversation said, well, but was it, was it, was it really for that purpose? You know, and now we see what's happening here with, you know, with this global quote pandemic, Dr. Huff and people are blown up my DMs asking me, okay, the military or the military, the DOD, you guys admit to creating these things for one reason, but was it really for another? Because we were kind of left with the impression after Monday that there, there could be other reasons why this was released. And and listening to the conversation today about biosurveillance, it's, it's some people are left with, are you surveilling, uh, for the sake of, um, uh, of, of our health, right. Uh, of mitigating, uh, things being released upon us or just simply understanding science and how these things morph or, uh, the, the gross, the gross theory at this point is that our very own government and or governments, uh, possibly, uh, created this and have surveilling for other purposes. I mean, what is your response to that? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. You're, you're probably going to have to ask me that question in, in sections. Um, the government, the federal government and, and the state governments and, and even the local and county governments have, have an incentive to want to con- conduct biosurveillance. The, the fact of the matter is, if you look at the economics alone of pandemic response um, or even infectious disease outbreak uh, response, the sooner that you can catch the event, the less it will cost the society in terms of economic output and actual dollars in, in responding to the, the event. And when I worked at EcoHealth Alliance, and I talk about this in the book, there was a big program that was funded by the United States Agency for International Development called PREDICT. And the idea was that they were going to use this, to use biosurveillance to monitor disease globally and then take that one step further well, actually, a couple steps further, but I'll only going to one right now. They want to take that one step further, then analyze the infectious uh, diseases to see which ones had pandemic potential and which ones could then mutate or be mutated in the laboratory to see which ones would be the, the, the nastiest potential bug on the planet. The only problem was with that program was that the biosurveillance was not executed by textbook definition. And what, what I mean there is that, um, and I, I didn't realize this until after working at Equal Alliance for about a year, is that back to that definition of biosurveillance, that, that samples, if you're, you're and we're talking about samples from animals in this, this uh, case, specific, specifically bats, if you're going to take rectal swabs or uh, uh, nasal swabs or saliva from the animal or blood or some other, some other tissue, you have to do that on a routine and systematic basis. And what that actually looks like in practical purpose, and, and in animal agriculture, a lot of the big farms are conducting surveillance routinely. They're looking at the animals all the time because they don't want to lose their entire herd or flock or crop of animals. So you might you you have to use something like uh, something called a sample size calculation. It's a statistical process to figure out, you know, what is the minimum threshold of samples I need to collect to, to do this efficiently because you can't, you can't test everything in the world. It takes time. It, it costs money. And so there's a, an economic cost associated with conducting surveillance too. 
And there's a huge opportunity cost. So back in the, the context of this, this PREDICT program, well, they were going out and they are telling everyone that they were going to, they were going to conduct this type of um, global surveillance. They were not conducting it systematically. And what I mean there is they were actually collecting what's called cross-sectional data. Uh, cross-sectional data, data looks uh, is a scientific method or, or approach in, in public health or uh, the life sciences where you go out and you just sample a population. So a population could be a nursing home. So a scientist would go there and then sample and take collect samples from the nursing home uh, of maybe a hundred all the maybe all the different residents that live there, hundreds of people looking for an infectious infectious agent, but only doing it once. So you do it like on the first of the month, and that's the only time you do it. That's that's an example of cross-sectional data. With biosurveillance, the way that it's supposed to work is you should be connect uh, collecting those samples daily, weekly, some kind of routine interval, time interval. And what they were actually doing is there was more of this cross-sectional type of data. So there was a lot of doublespeak uh, happening happening related to this type of program. Other Now, domestically looking at other types of, of biosurveillance, uh, this over-the-counter method that I described uh, previously is really good for biosurveillance because it's cheap. It doesn't cost anything or it's very low cost for the government and the, the insurance companies and the pharmacy companies to share this transactional data about over-the-counter drug sales. The problem is it's, it's not very specific. It doesn't, so just because people start buying this over-the-counter, you start analyzing this over-the-counter data and you see a signal, and this happens every fall once cold and flu season picks up, you can't really attribute that to any one specific agent. And if you're looking and you're concerned about uh, pandemic potential pathogens or um, other unique emerging infectious disease threats, it's pretty useless unless it happens, unless the signal from this over-the-counter uh, data pops up in, say, July, because that's not an infectious disease type of year. You typically don't see peaks in this type of data. So while, the, while there's this desire to, to be able to conduct the surveillance on all things, these programs are limited um, by how much taxpayer taxpayer taxpayers and the government or elected officials want to spend on them. And every year there are more ideas for new types of surveillance. The heaviest investments have been going into what's known as digital, digital disease detection. So instead of analyzing samples from different types of animals or humans continuously, because think about it to conduct a really good biosurveillance system on humans, if you want it to be laboratory based, so it'd be highly specific You'd have people out in your community knocking on your door, asking to collect samples from you and your family and think about how sort of ridiculous that is. And sometimes that actually does happen with, with certain infectious disease outbreaks. The, the CDC or the state, state officials might, might do something like that if they think that they can get ahead of it. But that's known as active surveillance. And that's very expensive. So typically, that those active surveillance programs are only implemented uh, once they they're aware of a, a threat and they're trying to respond to it. So most of the the surveillance that exists in the, the country is known as passive surveillance, and that's where you're waiting for the cases to either show up at the hospital, and along with this, so the back to the, the national laboratory system that I described previously, both in terms of animal and human health. There's a list of nationally notifiable diseases, and these diseases are typically 
thought of as being the most important or the, the, the highest risk in terms of um, their ability to spread and wreak havoc throughout the population. Or they're unique. Sometimes a new disease can end up on that list if it's a unique disease and you're concerned about it. So this type of surveillance is going on everywhere all the time, and it's in the background and you don't really see it. And without that, we'd actually, our, our healthcare costs would go up, go up a lot. Um, so it's always a, a fine trade-off of, in terms of national and state policy, of you know, how much are we willing, of our information are we willing to give in terms of our liberty and, and personal freedom. And most of the information that gets shared um, is typically de-identified, meaning that it's it's difficult to associate back with an individual. I say difficult because I, if you have a really smart person who understands these systems and how to analyze data, you can always pin it probably back to a person. Uh, but it takes a lot of time and resources. So the, for, for the most part, this information doesn't personally identify you. Um, but that identity piece is getting is getting more more eroded as the IoT environment becomes a reality. So the Internet of Things. So everyone's carrying a smartphone. And, you know, if you look at your smartphone these days, there's the, at least on an Apple product, and I think Google products have the same thing, where you can opt in to be part of the COVID notification system. So more and more of these types of technologies are, are becoming per- pervasive, and a lot of these wearable devices or mobile devices um, are able to collect human physiology data or the correlates of that. And then there's a really another interesting aspect of where this Internet of Things is going is is actually into nanotechnology. So there are nanos that exist out there that can be applied to the surface of someone's skin or sprayed on you, and you wouldn't even know it because they're the size they're they're less than a thirty microns, which is less than the width of a hair. And that's the really advanced end of that. But then again, that's really expensive are- expensive technology. Um, so, well, I've got an interesting, uh, Mr. Mr. Lund, Mr. Mr. Um, Hold on one second, sir. Okay. So I'm going to mute your mic because we have not opened the floor to questions just yet. And when we do, um, if you'll raise your hand, I'll be happy to come to you. Okay. Thank you. And that goes for anyone else who comes up into the speaker space. You are more than welcome to ask uh, whatever questions you have, as long as they are germane to the conversation. I do not want to go off into conspiracy theories. Uh, I want to maintain the integrity of the space. So uh, please raise your hand, Mr. Lunt, if you have something that you would like to add, and we will get to you shortly. Thank you. Uh, I am uh, Dr. Huff contending with bringing Lindsay back into the space. She's apparently been blocked out of the space now. So boy, you guys and your DOD folks, you guys bring all kinds of fun stuff. (laughs) um, Okay, please continue. My apologies. Well, and then, and then tying this all back to to the, your question. So there's this type of surveillance is pervasive throughout society. We're not, it's not going away anytime soon. It's well established. They're trying to increase it at the international level with the international health regulations, um, with the world health organization. And I don't think that it, it's all bad or nefarious. It's the devil's always in, in the details in a matter of execution. And, you know, we have to put a lot of trust into our public health officials to, to do the right thing. I, I, my biggest concern with the surveillance state as it relates to infectious diseases is that as more 
contractors and parties are brought in to work on the the IT infrastructure of these systems, it becomes difficult to isolate and control that system unless it's completely controlled by one government agency. Yeah. Well, and, and who would that be? Well, it depends. I mean, sometimes that's the Department of Defense if we're talking about threats and concerns to the the military force. So the Defense Threat Reduction Agency has their their own capabilities in terms of and, – and as being part of the Department of Defense, their own capabilities in terms of monitoring, surveilling for uh, infectious diseases and then also chemical warfare uh, threats. They – they also have the military also has mobile stations and mobile technologies which they can deploy on the battlefield uh, to look for infectious disease agents. And through what Colonel Hoffman was speaking to uh, and uh, Charles Rixey uh, in the last space was that the National Guard civil support teams, and then th- also the Department of Homeland Security with agencies like the EPA actually have the capability to go out and conduct mobile sur- surveillance uh, via a variety of different capabilities and technologies their mobile sense uh, mobile stations and all or excuse me uh permanent or i should say semi semi-permanent types of devices which exist out in the environment in most of the major cities in the united states if not all of those by the, all of them by now it's been a few years since i've um went been had access to that information that was not classified okay. and and then there's also people i mean i know for a fact like the national guard for example has wearable packs where they can put these mobile sniffing packs on uh, people's backpacks and they actually go walk around the, the crowds at, at like things like the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of active surveillance technology. And I, I think that's, that's all good stuff because without it, um, you could really get blindsided and a lot of people could get be harmed or be killed. Sure. Uh, you know, I would agree with you. I, I think all those things are fantastic. Um, adjust your mic, please. Um, I, I believe all those things are fantastic. I also just hosted a space for active military um, who are actively battling um, against their own commanders regarding mandates. Um, who have been vaccine injured. Um, so some of those guys definitely, uh, they're grounded pilots. You know, these are men and women who can't do their jobs, uh, that they were otherwise commissioned to do. So, um, the, like I said, the, and I know you're not here to argue that, nor will we, uh, but the, there's, it's like I'm listening to you and you're extremely scientific and thorough and, and, and every bit of it's like, yeah, this is fantastic. This is great. And then I look at the other side of the coin of what our reality is. And in the reality of our actual military, our, our national security infrastructure in the way of our own people who have been horrifically injured by what we now call a, a vaccine uh, to offset what apparently, you know, you guys were, I say you guys loosely, but our own government was, you know, uh, allegedly uh, attempting to put together to detect, you know, many, many, many moons ago uh, with regard to protecting our nation. And now it appears as though something has, in fact, you know, been unleashed on our people. And and so it, there's just a juxtaposition that's here that. I know we're not going to, you know, get into that just yet. We probably will later in the series. But as it's coming up, I just, I feel the need. Your evidence and your, your, I want to say this as my disclaimer, as the host of this, of this show, your evidence and your history is yours, right? And in your scientific knowledge and in your expertise, I'm not going to diminish that. And I hope I'm not giving you all that impression. 
with my rebuttals, okay? But two things can be true, if not several. And the fact is, I have people who are adversely affect, affected, who are in uniform, who, you know, should be protected from things like bioagents. And, and it appears that they um, are, in fact, the ones who have been adversely affected, along with many of you sitting in this space and your loved ones. So I, I do want to have a, a balanced kind of, okay, I know this is the science and I know this is where it comes from. This is the reality of what my audience and everyday people are dealing with. Where do we find uh, answers in, in between those two things? And hopefully throughout this series, uh, Dr. Huff, you can help us do that, you know, with more information that you're bringing forth. If you don't mind, I'd like to go to a couple of people who came up in the queue. Is that good? Sounds good. All right, cool. Uh, since Mr. Lund um, was first, let's let's go to him. Mr. Lund, please. Australia, uh, farmer, 63 now. Uh, last time it rained heavily here in, in Queensland, it was like Roundup. And I'm talking about biotech up in the skies. Uh, we saw these planes and... Um, and it was really odd that um, after it rained, everything looked like Roundup. Uh, they talk about food shortages uh, connected with this little problem. And, uh, yeah, everything went moldy. Uh, the garlic tops went dead. The pumpkins were yellow. And the grass looked like being Roundup. And it, it extends a little bit more than just the people. It's a food shortage problem too. Uh, I'd just like to add that. Well, thank you for that. It's uh, uh, a very interesting topic that you brought up. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, you can sort of look at that later because you can talk to other farmers around the world because I've talked to a few other farmers and they've lost a lot of crops uh, because of this rain. Sure. Mr. Lund, if you, if you it, missed... It's connected it, to what you're talking about. If you missed uh, Monday... Yeah, yeah, if you missed Monday, I would encourage you to uh, go back and listen to that. Uh, and thank you for joining us. I appreciate you. Please um, hang out in the space for sure. Um, go back and listen to that podcast, to that show, uh, because we actually addressed uh, somewhat uh, of, of, quote, few food shortages, right, or disruption in supply chain. And uh, Colonel Hoffman actually addressed uh, a, t- a tad of that, but it, it, it does tie into this conversation. Uh, let's go to, unless, Dr. Huff, do you have anything you want to add to that or you want to go to someone else? No, ma'am. Okay, cool. Uh, let's go to News for Friends. Hi there, um, Monica and Dr. Monica and Dr. Huff. Thanks for having the space. I'll make it uh, one point. I have many ideas on this subject, but I'm only going to mention the one item that proved nefarious intent to me. When you go back and look at the Ebola outbreak, remdesivir was tr- tested there, and in the clinical trials, proven to be unfit for human use. Yet it was pushed out very quickly as the treatment of choice while ignoring other options. That proves solid, nefarious intent to me. That's all I wanted to say. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you, ma'am. You do as well. Uh, Dr. Huff, do you have anything to answer to that or add to that? No. No, not really. Okay, great. All right. So, you guys, thank you for your um, listen. There are over 300 of you in this space. 
And I know all of you have very strong opinions, but and that's fine. And there will be a time for us to get to those. Trust me, you know me, I'll give you a microphone. Today, however, we're on a very limited amount of time. And I do want to respect Dr. Huff's expertise, and I want to respect his time. So if we could please keep this to questions you have that are germane to this particular episode. I would appreciate that. And uh, and I know everyone else in this space would as well. So uh, we're just going to go to a couple more and then we're going to get back to, I know Tim has uh, a question for you as well. So uh, let's go to National Conservative once you come up, please. National Conservative, that's you. How about York's Pride? <laughs> That's you. Do you Hello, have- can you hear me? Yes, we can. Please. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for giving me the uh, the opportunity to speak here. And, uh, it's an observation question for the medics. I'm I'm a psychiatric nurse in England, and we were in April 2022. The the, the NHS in England for for people that well in in the UK for people that don't know. Is the NHS is the third biggest employer in the world, 1.2 million people, and there in April 2022 there was around a hundred thousand NHS workers um, that were not vaccinated, and the government were mandating NHS workers to be vaccinated or they would be sacked, they would lose their jobs. So I just. When people start talking about statistics and stuff, I just want to look, I just want to, the, the government dropped the mandate because they knew they couldn't afford to sack basically one in 12 NHS workers when the health system in the UK is already struggling. It's really, really on its knees. So when people start saying, well, look at statistics and look at, what I would say is look at the actions of your government. We were told, we were, we were being, um, we were getting emails from HR and um, senior management sure. telling us that we were going to be sacked if we didn't have the vaccine. That was, you know, on the 31st of March 2022. Sure. You know, that was the day we would all be sacked. And, and on in, the 1st of April. In your side, with all due respect, thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to come in. Um, I, I would say that, that we're struggling, you know, with the same things here in this country. But for the sake of this conversation, we're not going to go back over mandates. Um, and hopefully I did not open Pandora's box with that. Uh, we all know that we're all struggling with mandates. What we're trying to do is to go back to how we got here incrementally, step by step, from our government's perspective and from those who do serve in the sector of science and technology. So that's what this space is about. So again, before you guys come up to a mic, and we're actually going to go back to 10, uh, because I know his questions are germane, um, I would prefer to spend our time on you know the actual topic and then at some point we will actually open up the mics and you got and dr huff has already agreed to make himself available and um and we will you know host uh these types of questions comments concerns okay how about that excellent 10 please okay um dr huff back in 2020 uh a group of uh, doctors and scientists and myself were using 
uh, tools like Google Trends to identify analytics and, and metrics on where there were outbreaks based on the um, the usage of terms uh, such as searches for you know hospital, emergent care, fever, and and so on. Um, I noticed that you had in, in your book in uh, I think it was chapter one. You actually discussed this matter of um, air pollution and being able to like to find details. Now I know we covered this briefly yesterday. I just wondered if you would like to cover a little bit more because it's this on on topic today. Sure. So the the first thing that you, you mentioned, the, the the key search word term idea has been, has been around for a while. I, I think people, well, I should say, engineers and scientists started considering that as a method of identifying a signal for infectious disease outbreaks back in 2008 or 2009, and a lot much of it was looking at keyword search terms through platforms like Google. There actually used to be uh, a Google flu, which which went defunct because a, another scientist I worked with actually proved that it didn't really work that well. But, but that aside, it, some of it does work very well. And that key search word, word term has evolved, evolved into another type of digital d- disease detection uh, known as natural language processing. And with the rise of machine learning and artificial intelligence, some of this has gotten pretty good. And it, I, I don't know if you, how many of you follow Elon Musk, but every once in a while, he, I think he's in a funny mood and he uses some of the online chat bots to describe something based on machine learning. And that's how far, far it's, it's come to the say or AI. I'll use those uh, sort of in, interchangeably. Uh, with, with natural language processing, uh, you can get smarter about how you look for these signals. So you can look for things like I had a temperature of 96, you know, would that be dead? But I had a temperature of 103. And that type of search term, that, that type of data point and the accumulation of those type of data points in one physical location uh, can can indicate a signal. So the other thing is with this this type of signals detection – it, it actually, there are metadata these days. And with metadata, it's the combination of different data points across a different spectrum uh, of devices, uh, not always just a computer with, with search word terms, for example. So they might have your transaction, so they might have your transaction history. So you go into a Target or Walmart and you buy some flu medication. Okay. They have your location, you, you, your location on your phone shows you sitting at home. Um, you maybe do a couple of these search word terms. Then, and additionally, they they see some financial transaction, or they see visit your your health insurance website. So, all of these become variables in the equation, and what can then be processed with machine learning. And that's really where the this capability is today. And much of it is very similar to what Edward Snowden was talking about of how the intelligence community could analyze your metadata to profile you and make predictions. Um, I'm trying to remember the, 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 um, the minority, my, the, I was going to say the movie, the minority report where they're trying to analyze people's thoughts and metadata to see when they're, when they'll uh, commit crimes. It's very much he- headed that way. Now, is that all bad in terms of infectious diseases? No, but I, I mean, I d- it does have a certain uh, cr- creepy factor to it. Uh, even corporations have gotten so good at this in terms of marketing data. They, they, they oftentimes can, they know 
when a 16 year old girl is pregnant before their parents do. And the next thing you know that the, a company like Target or Walmart will start sending ads to the house for baby formula or diapers. <clears throat> and then, you know, mom or dad checks the mailbox and then there's ads in there from these companies and how they pick it up. And even nowadays, with depending on the settings on your phone, they could be analyzing the things that you're saying or maybe even listening to the sound of your breath. A lot of this has gotten really quite sophisticated uh, in how they do that. And it's potentially uh, big business. Did that answer your question? Yeah, that answers it very well. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm starting, I'm starting to feel like, <laughs> well, I won't make jokes, but you know, I'm a jokester, Dr. Huff, and I'm starting to feel a little L. Ron Hubbardish right now, uh, where when you say, you know, they can detect your breath, right? And I'm thinking, yeah. I mean, and, and the question I keep coming back to, and, and again, without harboring any level of resentment toward the scientific community, toward technology, because I don't, to be quite honest with you, even through all of this, I, I'm a very reasonable and logical person. I'm also someone who doesn't enjoy being stalked, right, or otherwise manipulated. And so when I'm, when I'm hearing all of this, the, the glaring question for me is why? Why? And why is it under the guise of national security? And so we buy it hook, line and sinker and it's convenient. And so, my God, they know when you go to bed, if you have a a sleep number bed, you're connected to your neighbor's bed. They know what your sleep patterns are. They know when your bladder's acting up at three in the morning. They know what you drink before you go to bed. If you drink, they know if you're having sex, like they know everything about us is on someone's radar. And that is extremely disturbing. For me personally, uh, and and I realize that you're on the science end of this, but I'm just telling you, as a layperson, my my the biggest question I have is if someone would please be honest with us, why? Well, I think from the, the the corporate perspective and the the technology companies that I've worked with over the years, it, it's very simple. They try to make their product as low cost to the consumer as possible. And the way that they do that is by harvesting your data in a number of the applications or hardware devices that are present on something like a smartphone. And the only way for you to really get or any person to get away from it is to detach yourself from the use of these technologies, even though they're becoming um, more ubiquitous in society. I mean, you're hard, you're hard pressed to find a car these days, which isn't connected or can be connected to the internet. Uh, I recently bought a new uh, range. I call it the assault range after they're joking about having the ban out uh, last week. And one of the features you could get on it was optional to have Wi-Fi on it. Well, I didn't get Wi-Fi on mine. Um, and the, the really the extra creepy factor here, though, is that even with devices where you might want to opt out of having Wi-Fi or technology or other, other kind of connectivity on that device, whether it's LTE or something else, they can still put the hardware in the device and activate it if you purchase it thinking that it's not there. And that's happening more frequently too. And and that's how actually the Chinese have backdoored a number of technologies, which are then sold in the United States. There's been a number of creepy stories about baby monitors, for example. But the reason the driver behind all of this is that they're trying to provide a high quality product at low, as low cost possible. And the way that they can do that is by making the data, the data collected off the device another revenue stream because it makes because it makes the company more profitable. So if they're 
profitable in other areas, then they can lower the cost back to the consumer so they can sell more of their product to them. That sounds like a very capitalistic answer, but I do respect it. (laughs) (laughs) And and I do appreciate it. Uh, Go ahead, Tim. And then after you, I want to hop over to Susie. Well, yeah, yeah, this isn't a question. Um, There are Bluetooth detectors that you can get from the Google Play Store. I'm sure there's the same for iPhone. You can basically detect all the device IDs that are transmitting on those frequencies. And similarly, there are the same for Wi-Fi. So you can basically go around your house and identify what devices have um, broadcast capability. And you can actually um, pin them down, like walk around and actually find their locations. So... I actually found my Fitbit a couple times that way. I've played around with some of these technologies. Some, some are pretty cool. I think one is called uh, Wireshark, if I remember. But there, there's a couple different applications, uh, co- consumer-grade or uh, commercial-grade, which you can get for your computer and then load this stuff up and then run around and hunt for devices, even hidden networks or hidden Bluetooth devices. Uh, and if you want to get really fancy, you can run a – you can get a device uh, to look at the whole spectrum so you, of, of devices. And then sometimes you can pick up things that might be emitting other signals. The, the, the reality, though, is who wants to do that and who has the, the capability to do that? Do you want to have to buy some specialized software to do that? People just want to buy a device and have it work out of the box, and they want it to do all these cool different things. So that's why when you buy computer hardware or mobile devices, typically the default is to have all these things turned on because they want to give the best user experience possible, but then also collect all these different data points simultaneously and while it is very big brother uh and it can be i don't know what the the better solution is unless we have a a new policy or laws put into place at the state level with a with a big state like california which has enough influence to uh shift a whole entire market uh or florida or texas new york could do it too but that probably won't happen or the federal government enacts some new cyber legislation to protect people's privacy i just don't see it happening and the united states is so far behind and i I know there's a number of national security experts that that agree with me on this the united states is so far behind in terms of information technology and cyber policy it's scary i mean the europeans are way ahead of the united states and uh the chinese and the japanese are their thinking is far advanced in terms of um technology policy very disturbing indeed uh susie go ahead hi there thanks monica and thank you dr huff for being here so uh well first i'm going to make a comment on a a creep factor it's happened to me a couple of times where i didn't tweet i didn't talk i didn't say anything out loud i didn't text anything nothing i thought about something i wanted to buy and facebook showed me an ad like i mean it was almost instantaneously i don't even want to think about whether that was a coincidence or not but it did happen a couple of times but um I seem to recall you talking on Monday, I believe it was on Monday, about a nanotechnology that they could, and and I might have got this wrong, it was late for me in the day, um, about a technology that involving nanoparticles where they could like spray it on you, inject it in you, and it'll monitor you, your health and all of that, unbeknownst to us. Is that correct or did I mishear something? That type of technology exists. I, I don't know how how much it's being used or applied. I've seen it tested in the animal agriculture world, and I know they're actually using a lot of that type of uh, nanotechnology actually in animal, uh, excuse me, in plant health now, where they can spray and apply it to crops through um, some high precision farming on plants. 
and yeah, so there, there are nanos which they can you can be applied to the skin of a person or animal to sort of monitor their physiology because you can get a couple interesting things off it. You can get um, you can get their the oxygen concentration of the, the individual. Um, you can get you can measure respiration. You can change uh, respiration rate and changes in volume. So w- when you have nanos, each one is sort of a, a micro device or a microcomputer. And it can do simple processes or tasks, and, and they're becoming more complicated by the day. But if these things are networked and they can communicate with each other, it's not just the one nano. If they spray, you know, a hundred of these things on your body, across your body, they can then take uh, get more a- accurate measurements because it's taking measurements from multiple positions in places in space off your body. So that's the the, the very I think far far end of where technology exists for that that type of you know nano processing of physiology. But then again, that also takes a lot of processing power in the cloud or on a mobile device or another device where it has to be transmitted to and analyzed. And the right now I think the, the economics and the usefulness of someone doing that to you as an individual to invade your pri- privacy just isn't there. It's more likely that they would use the, these these nano devices for tracking, I think, for a national security application. And I joked with people, and I think uh, several different people that have come into my life since I've, I guess, my prominence has increased. I, I wrote a paper in graduate school on the use of nanotechnology to uh, track people for national security applications. And I know for a fact that that techno- technology does exist today. And I wrote that paper back in uh, uh, 2010. I actually had a class with a scientist who was um, at DARPA, the De- Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and he had he was the inventor of something uh, which is known as the micro-electromechanical system. And the MEMS circuit, these microcomputers, actually make it possible for these nanos to, to self-power, actuate, and um, transmit information and do simple tasks. So it was pretty cool. I had a class with this guy. And um, he was actually trying to get me to work at DARPA years ago, but uh, you can only see how this technology would advance. And and back then, it, one of the strangest applications I ever saw this, but it made perfect sense because he worked at at DARPA. And this was a declassified video. It's important that I say that. But the U.S. government used to have, or the Department of Defense had an application of spraying this stuff out of a, an aircraft, and they could basically paint a whole. Uh, like a football field with it. But each one of these nanos was actually a little miniature explosive networked with the other ones. So what happens with the problem, it was to solve a, a practical problem, like cluster bombs, for example, are sort of dumb. They're dropped out of the airplane. These little uh, uh, bomblets fall out and they fall to the ground and they have different types of triggers which activate them. Well, the difference is when you use a nanotechnology is because each one has a little computer on it and they all communicate together. You can have them all de- de- uh, detonate simultaneously. So it solves a practical problem, but I mean, you can see how far advanced that was back in 2009 or 2010. Now you compare that in context of where they where they likely are today. You can only imagine that they've done more interesting and advanced things with them. Excellent. Thank you, Susie. I appreciate that. Um, we have approximately 10 more minutes left uh, in this particular episode, but I do want to get to some other hands. And also, um, before I go to Dr. Tao Braun, who's U.S. National Counterterrorism Advisor and Trainer, interesting. I want to read this to you, uh, Dr. Huff. Hi, Monica. I'm a nurse inquiring in Hope this is in line with the doc's expertise. I don't know. Regarding chronological changes in cycle threshold, they use PCR. Does skewing play a role? And secondly, seeing some shifts in narrative like Dr. Leanna Wen, does skew used foreshadow? 
I'm not sure if I understand the question. Does SKU used for shadow? Well, if you don't understand it, I definitely don't understand it. So, okay. yeah, yeah. The, the, <laughs> so, yeah. Process what that meant. I, I'm not sure what what SKU. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I track. And that I don't question. think. Oh, actually, I you know what? That, this person's actually here in the space. So why don't we just let uh, JG Nightingale uh, come up and ask. Uh, for themselves. And then we'll head over to uh, Dr. Tao if he's still with us. Yes, he is. Excellent. Uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Braun. My apologies. Oh, I'm sorry, Monica. Were you permitting me to add? Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Please go for it. And then we're going to move over to uh, Dr. Braun. Thanks. Sorry. The question, I had limited space. (laughs) I guess, um, so my question was in just from regards to sort of, I guess, like narrative shifts. And if the cycle threshold of PCR could have potentially, you know, over time we were seeing those numbers change um, from the beginning of COVID. Um, if I guess it's almost like, and I'm trying to tie this, ensure that I'm tying this into the purpose of COVID and biosurveillance, that, that, that could the intent in things that we're seeing now with like Dr. Leanna Wen is, you know, on CNN more recently discussing or, or talking about COVID um, being overcounted now. Um, and is, is there almost, I guess, like a backward way of using that as a way to continue to promote vaccination in, in a way? But I mean, I suppose also, I guess, finding ways to use I, the, and skew, I meant like, um, you know, research and data, you know, sometimes we'll use skew as a way to maybe inject like bias into a a, you know, a journal. Um, am I getting anywhere? <laughs> yeah, no, I can, I can, I can see where, where you're coming from. I think I can try piecing that together. So yes, uh, surveillance systems can be manipulated and you could, you could, depending on the type of surveillance system that you're, so if you're a bad actor and you want to target the, the surveillance system to make your, your case count look higher than it actually is, you could do that because a lot of these systems might work out of sort of the law of averages. And at the end of the day, a policy person or an analyst has to take a look at the information on one of these systems and make a decision. And that decision could be for an analyst whether or not they're going to report someone else up or put it into a report. And one of the ways you could do this is that say that you hacked a one of these laboratories, you could go artificially inflate the case count at a number of these different laboratories to panic the country, to make to make the government panic and think that there was an infectious disease outbreak happening when, when there was not. That'd be a type, type of man-in-the-middle man attack. Um, it'd be more difficult to do that from a biological, traditional lab-based surveillance where you're going to actually go and manipulate samples because you'd actually have to send a bunch of sick people in to have them uh, sampled and then have the, those samples tested. That that doesn't seem very li- uh, uh, likely. But yes, I, I think there's there is some strong concern about the at least the digital data being manipulated from these types of systems as being a security concern. And then whether or not you would do that for nefarious purposes, I, you had mentioned cycle thresholds earlier. Um, I, I view that as being unrelated, but if you were to increase the cycle as a policy person, if you're increasing the cycle threshold high, high enough to a point where you're, you're going to find any anything that you're looking for, well, that's a that's a bad policy decision to begin with in a flawed biosurveillance system because you're going to be detecting things. And if you do it intentionally to make things look worse, yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly possible that something like that happened. I wouldn't discount it. And when you talk about the shifting narratives of uh, the doctors and experts in and surrounded, surrounding the, the, the White House, I mean, I, I know a, cu- a couple of them 
pretty well, at least who were, were helping the, the Biden administration. And I don't know whether to believe whether or not they were misled because I, I still uh, trust those people. And I think that they're good at what they do, but they're also subject to uh, potential influence peddling in terms of finance, financing or financing their research or their work in the future. So they're, they're not bias free, these people. And, in, for for whatever doctor would you know any doctor or expert or scientist that's willing to compromise themselves uh, to fulfill a political agenda, I, I just don't understand. I mean, I'm not one of those people, uh, but there's certainly plenty of them out there. Thank you for that, and thanks for coming up. I appreciate it. So, in in alignment with that, uh, there was a breaking news, I believe, yesterday that uh, NHS director confirms hospitals lied about cause of death to create illusion of COVID pandemic. Uh, it's all coming out, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of things actually coming out now. But again, I, I think there's there's sanity somewhere in between the science. Uh, you know what is being exposed during these episodes uh, and forthcoming and and the reality of of some of the more nefarious elements of what has occurred in the background and is now being exposed and you know i for one am not interested in throwing the baby out with the bathwater so i i believe there's a way for these things to you know become congruent so that you have enough you're armed with knowledge you're armed with knowledge and not just hysteria and feelings around everything, uh, but you're armed with actual knowledge and how systems work, how they were intended to work, so that you can at least understand how they pi- quite possibly got off track. Uh, we're going to go to one other person before we wrap, and I'm going to go to my co-host, uh, Christopher. I don't know if you've been following or if you have questions for Dr. Huff and 10, and then uh, Dr. Huff will round things off with you uh, before we go. So Dr. Uh, Braun, please. Thank you, sir. Hi, uh, thank you, Monica, for hosting this. And uh, Dr. Huff, thank you for speaking up. Um, I'm not sure uh, how many people realize the, uh, the sort of the implications of people speaking up, especially when you've got credentials like yourself. Um, so it really is a, uh, a gift to the world that you are conveying this information. Um, I, forgive me if I'm, if I'm covering something that uh, was said earlier. I sort of joined the conversation late. Um, you know, my work, um, just under a decade has been helping to establish a bridge between public health, law enforcement and emergency management as it relates to purposeful mass killing. Um, and one of the things that I've been trying to do for the longest time, uh, was to help people to not fixate on a certain weapon, whether that's a gun or, or a bomb, you know, sort of the idea that a school, things that they're safe until they realize, you know, they've got nothing in place for a semi-truck, for example, or what that would even look like as a response. Um, and so the bioweapon was, um, you know, definitely something that I had foundational knowledge. But the other side to this work is um, really helping people to get out of denial. And I think that uh, something that I think is crucial for us to be able to work through this problem, uh, solve it, hold people accountable, and hopefully put in some places uh, some things to stop these kind of events in the future, is to really um, you know, have a look at, at the potential of denial uh, from people that don't want to necessarily see that this is um, potentially U.S.-based. Uh, and I use the word potentially because until it's uh, 100% certain. I, I don't like to throw out anything that uh, sounds like a fact. In my opinion, this is a, a U.S.-based attack. The virus and the vaccine, um, as you know, are U.S. products. And I think that um, I've just been curious about sort of um, your own stance on sort of making, uh, uh, you know, looking at Wuhan or, or China 
um, uh, you know, sort of uh, as, as this uh, place of, of beginning an investigation. Um, but we know multiple labs have been involved in the development of this and multiple countries had outbreaks as well. And so what if part of the issue here is it's sort of for the deepest patriotic point of view, it's just very difficult to imagine our own um, nation uh, that we love and that would we'll want to uphold the constitution of this republic doing an attack on the on its own citizens and the world. So what are your thoughts on on shifting potentially some of that denial? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never been a, in the position where I, I, I try to, to give everyone or all the parties involved the the responsibility that they, they deserve. So the United States, from my perspective, mismanaged the program in the development of the, the gain of function and the dual use research of concern. Now the United States government is resp- not responsible uh, for the lab leak, which happens in Wuhan, China, at least as far as all, at looking at all the evidence that, that I've analyzed, both circumstantial and based on hard facts that have come out of that. Now they do have some responsibility, though. If you have, if since they have a number of reports indicating that this laboratory was not operating correctly, and there was biosafety and biosecurity concerns, and then the government does not respond to those concerns appropriately, and the, the bigger question is, you can take a look at domestically within the United States. Well, if we exported this this dangerous gain of function research to China and we advanced their bioweapons capability, their biological capabilities by outsourcing technology and knowledge by training their scientists and, and experts in what we knew. That's a big problem. And that's why Congress needs to investigate. And that's the I, thing I, I number one thing. Dr. Sorry to interrupt, but I think specifically um, what I'm talking about is the potential that we pulled the trigger, that this is an intentional attack and that the perpetrator is the U.S. government. So I think that's very, very difficult for people to even comprehend. That's a possibility. But I think we have to be open to that because the evidence is not, you know, 100 uh, percent certain that this was even a lab leak in, from Wuhan. There's other labs on the other side of the river uh, where the outbreak was that was also working with this stuff. But I think what, what my, my uh, you know, real urgency in this is that I, I just think that we're not going to get anywhere uh, with further investigations by focusing on you know, the potential of a lab leak from one building, rather understand who the perpetrator is and whether this is, you know, there's enough evidence that points towards this being a U.S.-based intentional attack. Now, whether there was a reason for that or whether there was a preemptive strike or whether um, they felt that they had to do it before a, a state operator like China did it, there's enough evidence to say that this could have well been an act actual wish um, on the world. And I just, I, you know, I think what's been frustrating is that if you're incredibly well-versed, uh, I've just been even more impressed on this conversation and uh, would love to have further conversations with you. But I think that the thing that I've, I've found the most is that people just will not go there as U.S., uh, you know, U.S. citizens, U.S. patriots will just not go there in potentially uh, looking at the U.S. as being the bad guy. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Braun, and and thank you for um, you know for being with us today. We have you know many other episodes to go, and I and I do think that that is a um, a looming question for for most people. I, I and honestly, I, I don't know that that those questions are going to be answered 
in these spaces, I, I think that you're being presented with information that are going to that's going to uh, promote uh, and provoke thought on on your part. It may actually, you know, open more questions, and that's okay too. I mean, that's fine. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much. Uh, so I, I don't know if Tin has any uh, closing remarks or Christopher. Uh, and I know we eventually got Lindsay back with us. If Lindsay has anything to add before we uh, bid you adieu for this episode, Dr. Huff. But Tin, Chris, Lindsay, anybody? I want to go with Lindsay if I, you know, because she's not been able to speak for a while. Sure. I haven't even been able to listen. That was so bizarre. Um, so <laughs> I got a notification at the top of my screen and I clicked it and it took me to another account I manage, which, uh, I help manage just defeat the mandates account. And when it did that, it logged me out. So I went to go back to my account to rejoin and it said the space was unavailable. And so Monica sent me another link and that one also said it was available. Then 10 foils that went in, that one said it was available. And I think this usually happens when someone on the panel has blocked you, but everybody on the panel follows me. I follow them. Very bizarre. I was, I could on my, on my personal account, I could join other spaces. So I've missed this whole conversation up until joining from the defeat the mandates account um, at the tail end. And I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, no idea why this happened. Just bizarre. So um, I guess that I guess I'm a threat. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, well, same same reason my my Wi-Fi was disconnected from my modem, so and otherwise known as cut. So, uh, yeah, so there's some of that going on, but uh, we're glad you're with us now. This has been recorded, so so you can actually go back and listen to it. (laughs) Exactly, all the things I would like to add in. Yes, sorry, I, I can't, I can't do that, but. Um, really bizarre. I've never had that happen before. So um, I apologize. <laughs> well, it's okay. And thank you for popping back in and we will definitely get you the recording and I look forward to having you on. Uh, I believe we're back on Friday and, and a lot of that is still tentative. So I will let you guys know. Uh, but Lindsay, thank you again. If you're not following Lindsay, please do so. Texas Lindsay is her handle. You can follow her written work at uh, texaslindsay.substack.com. Uh, she is a uh, communication strategist and, and she has a focus on whistle medical whistleblowers at that. Uh, she services the uh, industry. Every time I say that, I feel a little weird. She actually serves, how about that, the industries of science and technology. <laughs> She's not servicing the industries as far as I know. Uh, and yeah, and you can find her work there on Substack. So please support Lindsay and her efforts. She does uh, put together some pretty amazing spaces herself. She's been helping out with Lara Logan and those guys, and we all love her. Um, so, you know, make sure you're following her and hit the little bell so you get her announcements uh, whenever she's having spaces. Uh, Christopher and Tim, go for it. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I actually had uh, two questions. Um, my first one, Dr. Huff, is on in terms of biosurveillance, um, I was fascinated with what you were talking about. Um, so I have an iPhone, and a lot of other people have iPhones. I'm not sure if this is the case on the Androids, but like, I'll be randomly, let me just go ahead and say like in an airport. Let's just put something out there. And I get an alert on my phone that wants me to register out of nowhere. It wants me to register with the state of California or Washington or wherever um, to get notifications for COVID-19. And in, in the event that I come within distance or contact with someone who has been registered as a, having COVID-19. So my question is, um, when that pops up, is it your – do you have knowledge or is it your thought – 
that that means someone who has been registered to have COVID-19 has passed, passed close to me or anybody else who has that pop up on their phone? I don't suspect so. I think it's probably just a fact that your phone is being activated or turned on within a, a network, which is physically located within the jurisdiction of that state. And they might have a state level policy or agreement with the tech companies or providers to try incentivizing people to enroll in, enroll in that program. I, I think it, that's probably more likely. Yeah. And I, and I was kind of curious about that because like it won't happen. It'll only happen in random times. Like when I'm still on my cell phone signal, but I'll be in like maybe like a large crowd or somewhere like that. And then suddenly um, it, it pops up on my phone and I of course reject it. But um, my other question for you is with the technology, the nanotechnology you're referencing um, and um, the mRNA technology, um, do, you, do, do you believe that some of that has already been in, in, input into, um, let's just say, like fast food or other foods and or um, other vaccine shots? Like, uh, I mean, obviously, they're coming public about the flu vaccine having the new mRNA te- technology. But do you think that that's already been being implemented into other scheduled um vaccines like the MMR and, and some of those things? As far as I'm aware, it, it's not, it actually hasn't been implemented to, into any of the uh, vaccines, which would be, well, I, I hate to call them vaccines, the jabs that are commercially available or, or available in the clinic. Meaning, I know that they're doing mRNA type research on, on many different existing infectious disease vaccines, but they're not I haven't seen them being pushed to market yet. So I know that they're doing clinical trials and that type of thing, but I don't believe at this point that there are any available on the market currently. I, I could be wrong. It, that stuff changes quite rapidly, and I can't catch every regulatory filing with the FDA for new drugs because there's millions of them. Thanks, Christopher. I appreciate it. Uh, Tim, go for it. I was just going to – I was asking for a, a brief um, – summary of your experience, uh, career experience, starting from uh, your enlistment in the military into the infantry, if you if you don't mind. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. <laughs> sure. I can go through that real quick. Um, so starting off my career, I was a, a finance and econ double major, uh, walking into school. Um, on the first day, 9-11 happened. I have a bunch of friends who were in the military. So I decided to join the Minnesota Army National Guard as an infantryman. Um, I am rapidly deployed after completing a bunch of training to operation during freedom in Central America, where I provided force protection, training to locals, uh, worked on narcotics interdiction missions, and was involved in anti-terrorism activities uh, related to al-Qaeda's operation in Central America. Um, I volunteered for combat in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, While I was there, I decided to... Um, I thought I was going to be a career military officer. I was enlisted. Um, I went to OCS, but I washed out afterwards because I had terrible PTSD. And I decided uh, being a full-time active uh, duty military officer was not for me. So I switched over to uh, life sciences, actually. So I was bio biopsychology. And then I further refined that into uh, psychometrics by the time I finished that degree. Uh, finished pretty well on top of my class. Worked in a number of uh, very prominent psychological laboratories at the University of Minnesota which is known for uh, these kind of things. Um, the economy crashed, so I decided to, to buy some time. I, I thought I was going to be a psychologist, but then I went on to do a master's degree in security technology, engineering, and geographic information systems. Um, went on to get a PhD in emerging infectious diseases. And, uh, the emerging infectious disease specialty track from the University of Minnesota, uh, which is a subdivision of public health and environmental health science. 
worked as a research fellow at the Department of Homeland Security uh, Center of Excellence at the University of Minnesota at the National Center for Food Protection and Defense, and that's where I met Colonel John Hoffman. Then after that, I was a senior member of the technical staff at Sandia National Laboratories, where I continued working on all things public health related to national security. Then I was a VP at EcoHealth. Well, I was hired as a senior scientist at EcoHealth Alliance, and I was promoted to vice president. Then after that, I was a professor uh, tenure track at Michigan State University in hospital epidemiology, uh, working in both uh, human and animal epidemiology. And then after that, I was an executive at Jewel Labs. I decided to, that I was sick of working in academia. I didn't want to uh, publish the, publish things and, and be begging for grant money and, and playing the game anymore. So I walked away from it. And then ever since um, I, ever since leaving Jewel Labs, I've been independent um, as a consultant, writer, um, all sorts of different things in science, and I've never been happier. I, I noticed you did mention the uh, your work in in veterans affairs and and veterans psychology. Did you want to mention a little bit about that? Oh yeah, sure. I, I tend to forget things, so I, and I hate talking about myself at the history because it's so varied. Well, as a psychology undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota, I actually worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs as a program um, assistant, and I help expand mental health care coverage for veterans across the Upper Midwest by opening a number of contracts and actual new facilities for the Department of Veterans Affairs. And that's where I learned um, I didn't want to be a psychologist, so I actually had the opportunity to intern. Um, treating patients while working there as an undergrad, which is a very unique opportunity I was able to do it because as a veteran helping other combat veterans. And I just, I, I figured that I had a terrible bedside manner. And I just wanted to tell people to, to get better. I called it kick-ass therapy. I just wanted to yell at them and tell them to get better. And that's not the right thing to do. So I knew uh, being a psychologist in the future was not for me. Thank and, you so much. And, and you're like, you know, 32 years old. And now, you know, everyone in the space feels like, what have I done with my life? <laughs> yeah, I turned, I turned 40 this year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's excellent. I love it. The Renaissance man of science and technology. Good stuff. Okay, Dr. Huff, thank you for your time. And I look forward to our upcoming episodes. And uh, yeah, and our special guests that are coming. As you all know, um, you know, it takes a little legal maneuvering and permission for some of these folks to actually come into a public space and host um, unclassified uh you know, uh, talk shows, if you will, and, and give information, um, and Intel that's unclassified. And so I, um, I thank you for your time here today and thank you for your patience and your questions, comments, concerns. I have DMs. I, and I promise if you didn't get a chance to come up and ask anything today, I'll be happy to move that along, uh, to Dr. Huff and or Lindsay, whomever your question is for. And, uh, and we'll continue to navigate through that. So again, please follow Dr. Huff, uh, support his work and his book. Please do us a favor before we go. Where can people find your book? Everywhere, thanks to Skyhorse Publishing. Easiest place to get it is probably Amazon. If you go to uh, Barnes & Noble or Simon & Schuster, I think it looks better for the the book statistics because it helps to get on the number one list. But there's, if you look at the pinned tweet on my profile, there's a list of about 20 different stores, I think, where you can pick it up. Perfect. Thank you. I love your publishers, actually. They're very easy to work with and some of the best I've worked with, to be honest with you. They're on it. They're on point. They're on top of it. And uh, they represent you very well in your in your material. So congratulations to you again. Please follow Lindsay, Tin and Christopher. And we will be back Friday, I believe, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please share this space. It will be up as a show. We will edit some things down and uh, have some other goodies included in 
and you're welcome to pick that up if you subscribe to my podcast on any download medium you can find. And uh, other than that, have a blessed day and we'll we'll be back with you guys on Friday. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Huff. I appreciate you. Thank you. Have a good day, guys. You too.